Good morning, class! For today's history lesson, we're going to talk about someone very important. The President of the United States of America. Now, I'm sure a lot of your parents have told you that maybe one day you'll grow up to be the President. I want to let you know right now that that is a lie. Not one of you in this class will ever be President. Hello and welcome to Season 2, Episode 2 of the Almost Presidents Podcast. I'm Ryan. And I'm Kevin. And this is our monthly podcast where we talk American presidential politics through the lens of the loser. So, Kevin, we're entering early July. How are things going on your end? Pretty good. This is my first summer not being a teacher. So uh, I was trying to figure out if I'm jealous of teachers or not. But since most of them are working at summer camps, I'm really not at all. Yeah, it's true. I think I have three side gigs going right now. So yeah, I think that's the illusion of teaching, right? Is you're like, oh, well, it'd be great to have the summers off, but nobody has the summers off. Nobody really does. Yeah, really only the teachers who are married to somebody who's not a teacher and can thereby afford to do so. Yeah, like it's nice because sometimes you can have the option of like, okay, I'll make a little bit less money this year, but then I'll take the summer off. But most of the time you're going to work that summer. Yeah, but with that being said, I still do want to just capitalize on the freedom that it does give me to just stay up later and not have to spend my weekends lesson planning and things like that. Remember last year we went to the minor league baseball game? We only won once. I want to do it a couple more times. Yeah, those minor league games are so great because the tickets are dirt cheap. It's awesome. I think we paid $20 and we were right behind home plate. It's not bad at all. Yeah, and I, it's like I don't need professional players. You know, I'm good with like, I mean, I guess these guys are basically professional. Um, I'm good with, you know, a slightly lower tier. It's a little bit more intimate. You're much closer. So, yeah, I like the minor league games. They're fun. Yeah, I kind of see baseball and Broadway the same way. You don't really need the the big flashy lights and the huge ticket prices to see something good. Yeah. Although exactly. it was interesting, the team, the home team that we were seeing, they were ridiculously short, which was kind of bizarre. The other team came from Canada to play them, which was interesting. And they, they I think the tallest guy on the home team was at least like three to four inches shorter than the the next uh, shortest guy on the other team. It's bizarre. Yeah. I, well, I don't think it benefits you to be short in baseball or sorry, to be tall in baseball. I think it actually benefits you to be short because you got a smaller um, strike box. I think it benefits you to be tall in certain positions, though. Yeah, that's true. It probably benefits you if you're in the infield to be tall because you can jump pretty high. But I think I think it's going to weigh. And the wingspan, too, you know, yeah. being able to step off the bag and stuff like that. But still yeah. in the bag. Yeah, but I think from the hitter's perspective, it's definitely better to be short because it's easier to draw strikes that way. Yeah, I don't know if we ever shared this story on the podcast, but do you remember last year when we went when the hitter, it wasn't even a home run because they're not hitting homers in the minor leagues. I'm sorry not to trash them, but they're not. It was like a foul ball. And this grown man got into the scrum with a child to yeah. try and get the, the, uh, the foul ball that, that went into wild. the stands. And then everybody including the mascot was chanting i think the mascot actually got into it with the guy which was hilarious i really thought that mascot was gonna like yeah fight the guy (laughs) yeah it was wild but then the guy actually went and got the ball for his little kid so then it became more complicated like he brought over his wife holding the baby as proof like hey hey hey, like you know i didn't just knock the kid down for the ball uh just to get it for myself at a minor league baseball game that nobody cares about I did all of those things, but for my baby, who's not even going to remember the game. 
So that was yeah. interesting. It was a little bit more morally complex once you dug into it. Basically, everybody was trashing that dude for like five minutes. And then he came back and was like, I actually got it for my kid. And then people were like, oh, I don't know. Yeah, I still I still think it's probably not good. But yeah, I'm not used to moral quandaries like that in sports. That's kind of why I watch sports to get away from things like that. But it definitely True. had me thinking for the rest of the, the, the remainder of the innings, as it yeah. were. Yeah, for sure. But speaking of losers, uh, why don't we go ahead and get our show started about almost president Samuel Tilden. So let's get to it. So today we'll be diving into part two of a multi-part series on Samuel Tilden and the disastrous election of 1876. If you haven't checked out the first episode in the series and want to go back and start at the beginning of the story, feel free to put this episode on pause and check that out. We'll be right here when you get back. As for the rest of you listeners out there ready to start episode two, let's go ahead and get started. So if you've been listening to us since the beginning, or if you're a new listener, I'll assume that you trust us. Or rather, at the very least, you trust us with your time. So we're going to start this episode by asking you to do something that'll really get you into the mindset of the man who we're going to spend much of this episode talking about. So a little interactive piece for those of you that want to participate. Before I tell you what it is, though, I just want to put a disclaimer out there for all of your lawyers that... It's up to you whether or not you actually do this, and we trust that you're responsible enough to know when and where the appropriate context to do something like this is. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to take out a glass, ideally a tumbler or a shot glass if you have it, something you can pour a drink into, alcoholic drink. Next, I want you to take a bottle of whiskey, buy one if you don't have one, and pour yourself a healthy amount and knock it back. We'll give you a few seconds to have your drink but feel free to put the podcast on pause if you need to and turn us back on once you've had your drink. All right. I'm assuming if you're still listening that you've had your whiskey, if you're going to even have it at all. Now what I want you to do is to imagine yourself having two more and then going up on stage to give one of the most important speeches of your life. Just take a moment. Imagine that. Okay. So experiential component is over because now what you've just done is the exact same thing that Andrew Johnson did moments before he gave his inaugural address as vice president of the United States. It happened like this. After securing victory on the Union Party ticket spearheaded by Abraham Lincoln, Andrew Johnson was headed from his home state of Tennessee to Washington for the inaugural proceedings. Unfortunately, when he left, Johnson wasn't in the best of health, and you can't really blame the guy. His previous job that he just tendered his resignation for was military governor of Tennessee during the Civil War, which was a stressful job to say the least. The state of Tennessee was a mess during the Civil War. The conflict ran through the state like a blood-soaked hurricane, with a long list of battles having been fought there. And to make matters worse, while the state was technically a part of the Confederacy, there were still plenty of people within the state opposed to breaking ties with the Union. Once enough of the state was recaptured, however, Lincoln had appointed Johnson as military governor. Born in North Carolina, Johnson spent a majority of his life in Tennessee and had spent the majority of his adult life involved in Tennessee politics in a variety of capacities. He made a name for himself as a stubborn man who stuck to his convictions and was known for not giving ground to his opponent's views on how the state slash country should be run. He always claimed to be a champion of the common man and held Thomas Jefferson and Andrew Jackson as his political inspirations. One of Johnson's major strengths was that he was a renowned orator who people traveled for miles to hear speak, and he wasn't afraid to attack his enemies, the Republicans, head-on when delivering stump speeches. Now, you might be doing a double-take, 
or perhaps getting ready to rewind the podcast and make sure that you heard that right. Or you're already on your way to drafting an email saying, that can't be right. Johnson's enemies weren't the Republicans. Not yet, at least. He ran with Lincoln. And you would be right, at least on the last two counts. After all, Johnson was actually a career Democrat. Of course, he did infamously clash with radical Republicans later on during his presidency, but yeah, a Democratic politician ran for VP on the Union ticket with Lincoln in 1864. But back to the military governorship. Johnson was appointed to the post by Lincoln not in spite of his membership to the Democratic Party, but perhaps because of it. You see, while Tennessee seceded and joined the Confederacy, Johnson remained loyal to the Union. He was a senator at the time, and the only senator from his state to take so courageous a stand. And while Johnson is going to take much well-deserved criticism later on, his courage to remain a Unionist while the state went to hell has to be commended. I mean, he was putting his and his family's life on the line with this choice. But Johnson was a hard, stubborn man who stuck to his beliefs, no matter what the cost. But Johnson's choice to remain with the Union is a little more nuanced than simply choosing sides. Throughout the course of the Civil War and the years of Reconstruction to follow, Johnson held fast to the idea that it wasn't legally possible for a state to secede from the Union. He also believed the only way to preserve the institution of slavery was to remain within the Union, where it was protected by the Constitution. During Johnson's time as military governor, he was constantly on the attack, waging an all-out war against traitors to America whom he viewed in a very unsympathetic light which may seem surprising considering his future leniency toward former rebels in the years immediately following the war. He started demanding oaths of allegiance to the Union from ranking members of Tennessee society. When these oaths were not granted, a prison sentence could be the consequence. He shut down rebel newspapers, anything that helped circulate enemy news and propaganda. He collaborated, sometimes with a healthy dose of hostility, with Union generals to ensure the state capital had enough troops to keep it safely in Union hands. He even raised regiments of black soldiers to fight for the Union, something Lincoln approved of wholeheartedly. Unfortunately, his hard-handed approach to dealing with the secessionists didn't do much to win hearts and minds back to the Union cause, but that just wasn't Johnson's style. In his view, these traitors to the Union had to be crushed in order for his state to be saved. Sometime in the summer of 1863, whether for political or personal reasons, Johnson's odd views on slavery shifted in favor of emancipation. Make no mistake, though, Johnson was and would be for the remainder of his lifetime an ardent white supremacist. As president, he would go on to stymie much of the efforts of Congress to give full citizenship and equal rights to emancipated slaves. But he went from seeing a unified nation as the only way to preserve slavery to seeing emancipation as the only way to preserve the country. So that happened. And so after seeing his military governorship through and finding or finagling, depending on how you look at it, his way into the Union Party ticket and winning the election with Lincoln, Johnson was headed back to D.C. to be sworn in as vice president. So like we said, he wasn't feeling so great when he made the trip, so naturally, he had a few drinks. It was the 1860s after all. He drank enough so that when he awoke on inauguration day, he was pretty hungover. And as we all know, when you're hungover, like he for sure was, after all, it wasn't Bud Light he was drinking last night, it was whiskey, the only solution is to roll into the day by getting drunk again. And keep in mind, Johnson was already sick, so on top of being sick, he was hungover. Honestly, probably still a little drunk from the night before, and then he got drunk again to combat feeling like shit and being hungover. And so it was in this state that he strode into the Senate chamber to deliver his inaugural address. And being the renowned orator that he was, 
as well as being full of that whiskey confidence, I'm sure you know how that feels, he proceeded to humiliate himself by trying to give a speech and in doing so, immediately betraying the fact that he was drunk. He didn't even end the speech on his own terms. A friend had to elbow him and tell him, dude, enough. Fast forward 42 days, Andrew Johnson, the vice president, a man who for the next four years was meant to be just a heartbeat away from being president, now had to face the reality that Lincoln's heart was taking its last beats after an assassin's bullet was fired into his head while he was attending a play at Ford's Theater. After briefly viewing the dying president, Johnson returned to his room, muttering, they shall suffer for this. They shall suffer for this. The next morning, Johnson was sworn in by Chief Justice Salmon P. Chase and became the 17th president of the United States. The assassination of Abraham Lincoln and the ascension of Andrew Johnson to the presidency was an event of such magnitude that it would shake the country to its very foundations. Johnson was not like Lincoln, if you haven't gleaned that already. As a matter of fact, the main reason he was added to the Union ticket was to advertise to the disloyal elements of the country the Union Party's desire to bring the country back together by having both a Republican and Southern Democrat on the ticket. Who could have guessed that now this Southern Democrat would now hold office for the remainder of what was supposed to be Lincoln's second term of office? Surprisingly, the stance Johnson initially took when it came to dealing with the South runs counter to many of the things he'd say and do in the stretch culminating in his impeachment. In a meeting with radical Republicans, Johnson came off as a man well attuned to the problems of the country and who was willing to work with them to fix them. He said, quote, I am very much obliged to you, gentlemen, and I can only say you can judge my policy by the past. Everybody knows what that is. I hold this. Robbery is a crime. Rape is a crime. Treason is a crime. And crime must be punished. The law provides for it. The courts are open. Treason must be made infamous and traitors punished, unquote. Those last lines especially show that Johnson still held lingering animosity toward the rebels, perhaps from his time combating the Confederacy as military governor of a divided and bleeding Tennessee. But in the early days of the Johnson administration, he made it pretty clear that that was what he intended to do, punish those who had betrayed the Union he had clung to so dearly though it wasn't always entirely clear just how Johnson intended to punish former Confederates. One of the major developments in the early days of Johnson's presidency was the manhunt for John Wilkes Booth, Lincoln's assassin. After famously yelling freedom or six semper tyrannis, depending on which story you believe, Booth leapt from the president's box and, upon landing, broke his leg. Despite this fact, he still managed to escape the theater on horseback. On the run for two weeks, and being aided in his flight by fellow conspirators, Booth was finally betrayed. A tip given to his pursuers led them to a barn Booth was hiding in, which they proceeded to light on fire. This forced Booth outside, where he was shot in the neck by a Union soldier. Within hours, he'd be dead. With John Wilkes Booth dead, that left the other conspirators in the plot to destroy Lincoln and his war government to deal with. Johnson decided to have them undergo a military trial, which found them all guilty and sentenced the main conspirators, David Harold, Atzerat, Lewis Powell, and Mary Surratt, to death by hanging. The fact that among the conspirators sentenced to death was a woman complicated matters a bit. Should Surratt be hanged, she'd be the first female prisoner in U.S. history to be executed. This would make a lasting mark on Johnson's legacy, regardless of what decision he made. 
Ultimately, Johnson signed off on the executions. He was criticized later for not showing the mercy Mary Surratt's daughter was begging for on behalf of her mother. He claimed to not have seen the clemency petition for Mary Surratt, but either way, she met her end and became the first female prisoner to be executed by the U.S. government. Another development was that Jefferson Davis, who of course was the president of the Confederacy, was captured and initially even shackled before being imprisoned to await trial. What type of trial and how he planned to handle things with the former president of the Confederate States of America, Johnson remained unsure. One more anecdote that demonstrates Johnson's early attitudes towards the South involved General Sherman and Southern General Johnston. In our last episode, we saw General Lee's Army of Northern Virginia surrender to Grant's Army of the Potomac. When this happened, it boded ill for General Johnston, who hoped to unite with Lee's army and continue the war. Before long, it was Johnson's turn to surrender. And so on April 18th, he met with General Sherman to draw up surrender terms. According to a Battlefield.org article, Under this agreement, hostilities would be suspended pending approval of the agreement. Confederate arms were to be deposited in the respective state arsenals and could only be used within that state, and officers and men had to sign an agreement to cease all hostilities of war. Additionally, the President of the United States would recognize all Southern state governments as long as their officers and legislators took an oath of allegiance. The federal court system would be reestablished in the Southern states. The President would also guarantee the personal political and property rights of the Southern people and grant legal amnesty to all Southerners which implicitly included Davis and his cabinet. These terms were incredibly lenient to the Southerners and followed Sherman's policy of a hard war followed by soft terms. Sherman did not want to punish the South, but rather welcomed them back into the fold of the United States with open arms to alleviate any resistance. Regardless of his motivations, by offering these terms, Sherman delved into political matters which he had no authority over. For this reason, President Andrew Johnson and his cabinet rejected these April 18th terms and sent Grant to Raleigh to oversee the resumption of hostilities. Johnson's swift rejection of Sherman's surrender terms were met with unanimous agreement from his cabinet. It also kept him in the good graces of radical Republicans. So keeping these early actions of Johnson's administration in mind, what happened? What changed to make him much more sympathetic to the Southern cause? so much so that it allowed for him to be willfully blind of the plight of the freedmen. Well, when you boil it all down, it came down to a few things. Firstly, in Johnson's mind, the southern states had never actually seceded, as such an action was illegal. Second, Johnson was a firm believer in states' rights. After all, he was a Jeffersonian at heart. In his view, southern states ought to be responsible for themselves. He supported this stance by citing Article 4, Section 4, of the Constitution, which guaranteed every state a Republican government. This combined with his belief that none of the southern states had actually seceded were a deadly combination of ideas when it came time for Johnson to act. Third, although in favor of emancipation, Johnson viewed African Americans as a lower race to whites. So with ample time before Congress next went into session, Johnson began carrying out Reconstruction as he saw fit. Johnson started by issuing two proclamations, which would largely define his goals for Reconstruction. The first proclamation granted amnesty to former Confederate soldiers so long as they were willing to take an oath of loyalty to the U.S. and to accept the end of slavery. The second proclamation created the Provisional Government in North Carolina, which would provide a template for other Southern governments to follow. He used this proclamation to essentially restore the vote to everyone who had it pre-Civil War. 
And yes, if you're keeping track at home, this would mean that the traitors who killed hundreds of thousands of Americans and tried to secede from the country would have the right to vote, but black people in those same states would not. And Johnson refused to demand the vote for black people from the southern state governments. In his mind, these governments should be able to determine their own voting laws, which might mean black people couldn't vote. Radical Republicans like Thaddeus Stevens began to grow nervous, saying, quote, I fear before Congress meets, he will have bedeviled matters as to render them incurable. I almost despair of resisting executive influence, unquote. These two proclamations would make up much of what would come to be known as presidential reconstruction. And if you think this is sparse, you're right. In many ways, a defining feature of presidential reconstruction was that the president didn't do much to facilitate it. Johnson set up state governments across the South and demanded almost nothing from them, except loyalty to the Union and the ratification of the 13th Amendment. No universal male suffrage, no prescribed federal or state protection for the freedmen who were now rightfully citizens, nothing. The other defining feature of presidential reconstruction was Johnson's constant attempts to undermine the Freedmen's Bureau. The Freedmen's Bureau operated under the War Department and strove to provide food, clothing, and an education for freedmen, as well as land on which to live. The Freedmen's Bureau was by no means a perfect organization to begin with. Its full name was the Bureau of Refugees, Freedmen, and Abandoned Lands, and under the banner of refugees, the Bureau would wind up helping white people in far larger numbers than it ever helped freed people. The Bureau was from the beginning limited by its own leadership. Major General Oliver Otis Howard, who ran the organization and would later go on to found the historically black university, Howard University, believed that the Bureau's goal was to provide, quote, protection, land, and schools, unquote, to the newly freed people. This meant that the vote, which was essential to giving black people political agency, was completely off the table for the Bureau. The Bureau also operated under the belief that newly freed people needed to be taught to work hard and earn their living. Otherwise, they become lazy miscreants, because apparently former slaves had no idea how to work hard. Huh. It's bizarre. This meant the Bureau worked hard to convince freed people to enter into contracts so that they could start working. Some of these contracts were good ways to make a living, but with most of them, you had to really squint to see the difference between these contracts and the slavery from which the freed people had just been emancipated. Oftentimes, they meant that black people had to cheerfully obey the orders of their former masters, because they were often still called that, and sometimes they couldn't even live with or spend time with their spouses or family if they worked on a different plantation. And even within its own goals, the Freedmen's Bureau was often unsuccessful. The Medical Affairs Division, for example, was incapable of providing medical care since no Southern doctor would do it and not enough Northern doctors were willing to make the trip. Despite these problems, the Bureau achieved a remarkable amount. Howard was able to re use resources and land that had been confiscated from former slave owners and use these to fund education for freed people in the South. Missionaries came from the North to serve as teachers, and all in all, something like a thousand schools were set up across the South. At times, the Bureau would also try to handle cases involving black people in their own internal courts in order to avoid allowing the Southern courts, which would undoubtedly rule with a racial bias, to rule on these cases. An example of how this bias presented itself in the courts of unreconstructed states was that, in a case involving a black person, black people were prohibited from serving as witnesses and even from being members of the jury, which often meant that the only people serving as witnesses were whites who were openly hostile to black people. The Bureau also wound up distributing rations of food to 20 million black people and poor whites. 
But the most contentious and important issue that the Bureau faced was land. For Black people, getting food and an education were nice, but land represented self-sufficiency and independence. It meant that Blacks could be as wealthy and successful as whites, and Black people believed the blood, sweat, and tears that they had put into the land meant that they were entitled, and for some, even ordained by God, to have that land. Owning your own land meant true freedom. It meant you could grow your own food and make money on your own terms and raise a family and a home all your own. Owning land was the fulfillment of the American dream. Or at least, it was a start in the right direction. The New Orleans Tribune said of the issue, quote, There is no true Republican government unless the land and wealth in general are distributed among the great mass inhabitants, unquote. A strong statement, but many people believe that justice demanded that freed people own the land they worked on. But this policy received fierce opposition from people across the political spectrum, not just those whose land was at stake. Some people thought the land transfer was unconstitutional. It was seen as the federal government stealing land from one group and giving it to another, something they were fine with doing to Native Americans, obviously, but when it was white people's land, a lot of Americans got a little squeamish for some reason. Others worried that this would mean the federal government could grab up anyone's land and redistribute it at will for any reason at all. Whose property would be next? Maybe theirs. And others worried that if black people began to own property and accumulate wealth, then they would be as wealthy as white people. And that would be bad for some reason. This threat was particularly poignant for middle and working class whites who felt that they were losing the elevated status that was provided to them by their race. General Howard issued Circular 13, in which he ordered assistant commissioners in the Bureau to divide the confiscated lands under federal control into 40-acre plots to be leased to freedmen, and after three years they could purchase the land at its 1860 value if they had the money. Circular 13 attracted a lot of opposition, and most notably, President Johnson opposed it. Johnson's opposition meant pretty much the death of the circular, And after Howard tried to come up with a more modest proposal that the president might accept, it soon meant the death of millions of freedmen's dream to own a piece of land of their own. Johnson's rejection of Circular 13 was part of a broader war against the Bureau. He routinely removed people who were viewed negatively by Southerners as a means of undermining the goals of the organization. Howard did little in private or public to prevent the purge of earnest officials for the Bureau. But because the Bureau was often staffed by former veterans, it was staffed by people who were committed to seeing the goals of the war they fought and nearly died in through to fruition. Their hard-nosed approach may have kept the Bureau running, but it often meant that, since they couldn't be corrupted or coerced by white Southerners, they were instead murdered. Now, the next stage in Reconstruction begins, when Congress returns to Washington, goes to war with Johnson, and largely wins that war, passing new amendments to the Constitution, and working hard to establish rights for the newly freed people, and to answer some of the important questions pertaining to Reconstruction. Before we talk about that, however, we want to give you a sense of the human cost of these obstructionist actions on the part of Andrew Johnson. Johnson wasn't just obstructing obscure legal processes. He was actively standing in the way of the defense of people's human rights. And the plain Southern folk that he claimed to be defending were oftentimes murderers and terrorists. But Johnson was determined, and even quoted, as saying, quote, This is a country for white men, and by God, as long as I am president, 
it shall be a government for white men. His racist views didn't only find their way into his vision of government, his worldview was colored by distorted racial theories. Early into his presidency, Johnson said, quote, Everyone would and must admit that the white race was superior to the black. Unquote. And so what all this naturally equated to was not only something worse than bad leadership. Johnson had blood on his hands. And the fact that he could say with anything close to sincerity that things were all right for freedmen down south and that federal interference in the states wasn't necessary flew blatantly and obviously in the face of facts. According to a recent report on violence during Reconstruction by the Equal Justice Initiative, hundreds of black people were murdered in lynchings throughout the South in 1865 while Johnson was sitting on his hands. In Duplin County, North Carolina, six black men were hung after they demanded that a white landowner pay them for their work. In Memphis, Tennessee, a group of 20 Union soldiers were attacked and executed. And in Mobile County, Alabama, some 138 people were killed by white mobs over the course of a couple of months. But even during the time, word began reaching the North of more of these daily acts of terror and atrocity inflicted on newly freed slaves by embittered white Southerners. Ron Chernow recounts how, quote, One Louisiana slave testified that whites flogged blacks as if they were still enslaved, and that more than 2,000 had been killed around Sheriffport in 1865 alone. Blacks enjoyed little recourse to local sheriffs, who were often Confederate veterans, and seldom acted against whites charged with crimes against blacks. It grew patently obvious that Southern blacks could count on protection only from federal troops. As one Mississippi observer pleaded, quote, take away garrisons from this Southern county and the Negroes will be subjected to every outrage, end quote. And then returning to the Cherno quote, from Georgia came warnings of a new breed of nocturnal terror unleashed against blacks. General Rufus Saxton reported a black man killed, according to his quote, by a band of distinguished men at midnight, end quote. And returning to the Cherno quote, a grisly scene enacted many times in the coming years, end quote. And I'm sure when many of us think about what Saxon could mean by these nocturnal terrors, many of our minds go to white supremacist groups like the Ku Klux Klan. A cruel irony about having a Tennessean like Johnson in the White House handling, or rather not properly handling the murderous brutality taking place in the South, is that much of it took place in his home state. On Christmas Eve 1865, the Ku Klux Klan was born in Pulaski, Tennessee, led by a legendary former Confederate cavalry officer, General Nathan Bedford Forrest. They would go on to intimidate, terrorize, and even murder Republicans and freedmen across the South. The white robes and hoods they'd go on to wear were said to represent the ghosts of Confederate dead, as well as to conceal the identity of its wearer. Although interestingly enough, according to an article in Smithsonian Magazine, members of the KKK didn't always wear the white robes we usually identify them with today. The article states that, quote, Klansmen wore gigantic animal horns, fake beards, coonskin caps, or polka-dotted paper hats. They played guitars to serenade victims. Some clansmen wore pointed hats, everyday winter hoods, pillowcases, or flower sacks on their heads. And as an aside, um, if you watch Django Unchained, Willard's wife Jenny can be thanked for the poor visibility on some of these early designs that, um, according to the clan leader in the scene, you can't fucking see shit out of. In addition to Tennessee having the unfortunate credit of being the birthplace of the Klan, a race riot that took place in Memphis is well worth illustrating in all its gruesome detail in order to paint a clear picture 
of just what Johnson was failing to swiftly and effectively condemn and put a stop to using the might of the federal army. This is looking ahead a bit to May of 1866. By this point, the president had been receiving plenty of reports containing detailed statistics of racial violence occurring in the South from members of the Union Army operating down South, as well as his own representatives, men like Carl Schurz, who we mentioned in the previous episode. All it took to set off an incident of racial violence, it seemed, was the tiniest of sparks. In this case, the spark occurred when an African-American Civil War veteran was arrested by a white police officer. In response, a large group of black people showed up to prevent the police officer from putting the man in jail. This act of protest on the part of the black Southerners resulted in a three-day race riot that would leave 48 black people killed, 70 injured, and five black women raped. It remains unclear which group began shooting as things began to escalate, but the resulting violence engulfed much of the city. African Americans were attacked at home and even had their churches and schools burned to the ground. Even white people from the North who worked with black Southerners in a variety of capacities weren't safe from the violence. By the time the rioting reached its second day, the mayor, John Park, refused to request state or federal assistance to put an end to the violence. The Memphis police, whose job it clearly was to intervene and aim to put a stop to this, were participants in the looting and violence. It took U.S. Army General George Stoneman declaring martial law and sending in federal troops to finally restore order. These casualty numbers and these instances of racialized violence probably don't even scratch the surface at the kind of horrific violence that Black people were subjected to on a daily basis. Women were raped. People were assaulted. Sometimes children were even killed. We may never know the depth and breadth of the horrors that these human beings suffered under the rule of white supremacist governments. Now, one last chilling anecdote before we move on. In the early months of Johnson's presidency, when it began to become clear that the vision of Reconstruction imagined by men like Abraham Lincoln was not going to happen without a prolonged fight against the executive branch, radical Republican from Massachusetts, Charles Sumner, received something disturbing in the mail. It was a box containing a severed black finger accompanied by a threatening note. The note read, in reference to a Reconstruction bill favored by the radicals, quote, you old son of a bitch, I send you a piece of one of your friends, and if that bill of yours passes, I will have a piece of you, unquote. To be clear, this violence would not stop when Andrew Johnson's term ended. Arguably, it still does occur, although in a very different form. But it was precisely the perpetrators of these crimes that Johnson wanted to build a coalition with, and he acted on behalf of these terrorists and white supremacists every time he stood in the way of the Freedmen's Bureau and other attempts to defend the rights of Black people. So I hope it's been made very clear that this violence against Black people was horrific, but it's equally important to talk about the daily humiliations of subjugation under a white supremacist government and culture. Ending slavery was important, but what followed slavery was a system that didn't look all that different from its predecessor. This was a system known as the Black Codes. The Black Codes were a set of laws that restricted the rights of Black people. Some of them restricted the right of Black people to own property, conduct business, lend or lease land, or navigate through public spaces. But the Black Codes were more than just discriminatory laws. They were also a clever way for the South to preserve slavery, but by another name. Recall that the 13th Amendment had a clever exemption to its prohibition of forced labor. The text reads, quote, 
neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States, or any place subject to their jurisdiction. End quote. Did you catch it? Quote, except as punishment for crime, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted. Unquote. So a person could be forced into slavery or involuntary servitude if they had been convicted of a crime. But what is a crime? And who gets to decide what counts as a crime? The amendment doesn't answer this question. And so, as with everything else the Constitution doesn't comment on, the states get to decide. So, if a state determines something to be a crime, the criminal can become a slave. The most prominent laws that were a part of the Black Codes were the vagrancy laws. Vagrancy laws criminalized men who were not working. These laws were pretty much exclusively enforced against black people, and what counted as holding a job was pretty flexible and more or less up to the state in question. Some jobs didn't count as jobs, and black folks could be arrested despite working these jobs. In other places, black people could be arrested for leaving their job without the express approval of their employer. The people who were arrested under these vagrancy laws were leased out to private planters and other business owners where they could be forced to labor in much the same way that they had been before the Civil War. This was known as convict leasing. So there you have it. After a Civil War was fought and a beloved president killed, Andrew Johnson had pretty much allowed things to slide back to where they had been before the war. Understandably, tensions were rising. The Black Codes were such a flagrant and obvious attempt to rebuild the slave labor system that the Union had fought to destroy. In the North, many people couldn't believe that the Southern states were getting away with this. Was the federal government going to do anything about this at all? When the 39th Congress convened in Washington, D.C., this was the country that they would be legislating over. At the end of presidential reconstruction, the only thing that had been reconstructed was a different form of slavery. But now, a force that was very much the opposite of Andrew Johnson was going to enter the game, and they were much more powerful than the president. The radical Republicans would take the reins of Reconstruction, beginning the era known as Congressional Reconstruction, or sometimes Radical Reconstruction. One such congressman was an aging Thaddeus Stevens, who had made his name as a fierce abolitionist and a radical's radical. He had written to President Johnson extensively that summer before returning to Washington. He warned Johnson that no leading Republican approved of his policies and that virtually all of them believed his policies were a threat to the country. When his warnings were ignored, Stevens began writing to fellow Republicans, rallying them to the cause of putting an end to the disastrous course that presidential reconstruction had taken. He even persuaded his party's convention in Pennsylvania to oppose the restoration of political rights to rebel states unless they were ready to guarantee to all citizens, quote, the inalienable right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, unquote. Opposite radicals like Thaddeus Stevens were those Southerners that Johnson had pardoned. Many of the same politicians who had split the country in two just a few years earlier were re-elected by their states to partake in the 39th Congress. Among the Southern delegations was Alexander H. Stevens, the former vice president of the Confederacy, as well as six of his cabinet members, four Confederate generals, five colonels, and 58 members of the Confederate Congress. When the House and Senate reconvened in December, all of these forces, the Radicals, the Confederates, and President Johnson, would all collide 
in one of the most momentous seasons that Congress has ever had. On the next episode of the Almost Presidents podcast, Congress returns to Washington, and President Johnson no longer has a free hand to guide Reconstruction. Worse still for Johnson, this Congress was full to the brim with Republicans, many of them radicals, with a different vision from the president. This Congress goes on to be one of the most prolific in American history, rightly earning the title of the Second Founding, as they passed several groundbreaking amendments to the Constitution that would change American life forever. But could these radicals overcome the reactionary forces that oppose them? And could they hold on to the moderates whose support they would need for such a tremendous agenda? And most importantly, what would be the consequences if they were to fail? Find out on the next episode of the Almost President's Podcast. Okay, so we just like to end each podcast episode with talking about books that we're reading that aren't necessarily related to the podcast, but might be of interest to you. So, Kevin, what do you find yourself reading? Hopefully you're getting some reading done outside as well. Yeah, true. On days where it's not torrentially raining, as it has been so far. This torrentially time. raining or covered in smoke, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, so I, I think I mentioned on the last podcast that we did that I had listened to this podcast that convinced me that I should read some basically like fiction for kids or young people basically. And so I picked up a series that I read when I was really young that came out in like the late nineties called the edge chronicles. And the first book in the series was, I thought not very good. The first book was called beyond the deep woods. And basically the way I would describe it is like, try to imagine if Dr. Seuss had written like a full length fantasy fiction book, basically every chapter was like, he discovers a new creature in the woods and he has to figure out how to avoid like getting killed by this creature. Basically they're like dangerous creatures. Some of them are poisonous. Other ones are like large and threatening and he just escapes. And then you move on to the next chapter where it happens all over again. So it was really repetitive for me, probably would be good for the age group that they were aiming for, but I digress. But what I wanted to talk about was the second one in the series, which is called storm chaser, which is a really, really good book. Um, it kind of goes the direction of, I guess, Star Wars, the way that they had um, the New Hope as this kind of like fun adventure. And then the next one, Empire Strikes Back, was kind of like more dark and serious and and thematically rich. And this is kind of similar. Storm Chaser is the name of the second book in the series. And it's a lot more intense. They go on this adventure that's kind of full of like corruption and like there's a there's a lot of danger in it. It's actually, I think, potentially <laughs> a little bit violent for kids although there's not any like direct blood there's lots of people who die um but yeah it's a very intense very exciting and interesting uh, kind of adventure book a little bit steampunk i was gonna say looking at the cover because this is one of those rare times we're actually in the same room recording this it does have a steampunk vibe to it definitely from the cover yeah basically they are like sky pirates so they fly around on ships kind of if if, if anybody's ever played final fantasy in the early final fantasy games they're all kind of like fantasy-ish right obviously but they all fly around on these like flying ships basically so that's basically the the story what's better than morrowind and the elder scrolls series where you had to wrap your head around those silt striders you ever see those guys no i don't know or these beetles with these really long legs that you would just hop on to fast travel i could just never wrap my head around it it was just so (laughs) it was so bizarre yeah that's a weird choice i remember seeing this book though and we when we would go to our local library with mom and picking up the first book in the series and feeling super hyped just by the aesthetics of it, the way it looked. And 
I remember, I feel like I remember enjoying the first couple chapters. I just didn't get any further into it. And I can't remember why, but that's cool that you're picking it up again. And the second yeah. one's going strong. And it's got a lot of cool illustrations. Uh, it's written and illustrated. So there's oh, a lot of cool. like, yeah, very cool illustrations throughout the book. Yeah. Nice, fun read. I enjoyed it. Well, speaking of pirates, I just actually finished an arc in One Piece by Ichiro Oda that takes place in the sky, sky the Skypea arc. Okay. Uh, One Piece has go. many arcs. so Lots of sky pirates today. Yeah, so currently I'm technically on One Piece volume 34, but like most people, I just read it online. I'm not buying each volume, even though when you hold a volume of One Piece, it looks really good. Like The title is all outlined in gold and stuff like that, and the cover art is always a lot of fun to look at. But mm. I kind of have a system in place. It's actually so my goal last year for reading was I wanted to finish a Shakespeare play a month. And I think I fell short by a play or two. And my goal for reading this year is to just read at least a chapter of one piece a day. So my system is I read one chapter Mondays through Thursdays and then two chapters Friday through Sunday. And so far that's gotten me up to since starting in January, volume 34. I'm right at the beginning of a new arc. And I got to say, I'm loving it, not just for the fact that I'm revisiting something that I didn't, I had no idea it was this good when I was reading it out of like Shonen Jump when I was into manga back in high school. But I'm able to talk about it with this guy that I work with at school, which is always fun. It's very rare that I'm able to actually talk to somebody who's read something that I've read, just based on the nature of things that I read and just how hard it is to just engage in off-the-cuff literary conversations. And I would call graphic novels and manga literature, depending on the manga, I guess, not to be elitist. And uh, even when you had your birthday party in your new apartment, I wore this Monkey D. Luffy shirt, which drives my girlfriend nuts. And I know she's probably listening to this. She hates the shirt. They just had this Japanese shop in South Carolina when we went down to my aunt's timeshare there and I bought the shirt. It's my favorite shirt. It not only looks good, but it feels good on you. And I think I got three compliments on the shirt before I took off my sweatshirt because it was longer than my sweatshirt. So you could see the logo one piece. And then I think I spent the better part of your party out on the porch, just talking about one piece with your friends and uh, our family. Yeah. And then one of your friends, when he was on the way out, basically when he found out that I was only at volume 20 something, which is insane because that's still pretty far in. He basically just almost looked down on me for that. It's like, dude, you're so far yeah, behind. Fake fan. Fake fan. So far behind. Yeah. It's so interesting how manga and anime have kind of had this resurgence. Like I remember being in like middle, middle school and being kind of embarrassed that I was really into Naruto. But when I was teaching, I would have kids who were ostensibly kind of too cool for school talking to like super nerdy kids about anime and they would like bond over it. Um, so it's so interesting how it's kind of taken over and, and now people are, it's, it's sort of just mainstream and the norm. Absolutely. I mean, FYE in the mall is basically a manga store. Yeah. Just all of that manga culture. Which is another thing that made a comeback FYE. Cause that was, that was gone for a while, which I'm glad it did. I mean, I'm not yeah. a customer that buys something from FYE, but I do enjoy just walking around in there. I like that it exists. Yeah, But it's. I also always think, because I worked at Barnes Noble, about how manga moves from a retail perspective. Because it, it really seems like, I mean, I know for a fact that Barnes Noble, what they move the most is children's books, for obvious reasons. 
And then the second most are those thrillers, which I'm not a huge fan of. I'm wondering if manga doesn't come in at a close three because they take up a sizable portion of a lot of the Barnes and Noble stores that you go into. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised, you know, and I think that's one of those markets where the people who are into it are really into it. So nobody's going in there buying one manga book and then never buying another book again. They're buying five, six books. They're coming back buying more. You exactly. Know, so none of them ever end. Yeah. Well, and speaking of never end, the other thing I was going to say is, is I've, I've always kind of admired one piece from afar, but it's just so, so daunting because there's just so much to, to watch and, or to read, depending on which way you do it. It's I, w- just, I would recommend reading it. It's a lot less cheesier if you read it. Okay. But, um, once you get to chapter a hundred on, it gets past just being silly and genuinely gets really awesome. And I'm sure there are a lot of our listeners who are wondering at this point, Ryan, who's your favorite member of the crew? And if you're wondering, you know, sure, I'll I'll answer. No problem. Nico Robin is obviously the best member of the Straw Hat crew. It is a tough, tough going though, because they're all awesome in their own way. But so far, that's my favorite. I have yet to meet two members of the crew though. um, If you're familiar with where I'm at, if you're not, uh, I'm also just ranting and I'm sure if you can't, oh, never mind. Yeah, hopefully was, you didn't pick that up. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, maybe that car alarm was uh, there to cut me off. But uh, either way, um, definitely planning on reading that, among a lot of other things, this summer. And uh, you'll hear from us again in August in this same segment with what we're reading in August. So we hope you enjoyed the show, and we look forward to bringing you not only episodes about Samuel Tilden, but as the GOP race in 2024 uh, rolls on, right, for the presidency we look forward to bringing you more ron DeSantis episodes in anticipation of that so we will talk to you soon before you head out feel free to subscribe and rate us leave a friendly comment on the way out it really helps the podcast when you do and if you enjoy what we're doing you can find our twitter or instagram in the description below we'll keep you updated about the show and we'll also fill your feed with plenty of good old-fashioned memes follow us on facebook as well if you're a facebook person Just type The Almost Presidents Podcast into that search bar. And lastly, you can write into the show. Our Gmail is thealmostpresidentspodcast at gmail.com, which you can also find in the description.